You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast. So, where do you want your Joel Matip statue, Liverpool fans? The defender with a clutch winner against Ajax in the Champions League last night, securing a valuable victory for the Reds. In all seriousness, is that the sort of win which will set Liverpool on their way from now on? And we've heard a lot about Royals this week, but we didn't think that Emerson Royal would be on the list of talking points today. The Spurs defender not really defending at all as Sporting snatched the win over Tottenham yesterday. And more Champions League action tonight and a first taste of the European top table for Graham Potter. The new Chelsea boss has his first chance in charge as the Blues play Salzburg, whilst Erling Haaland comes up against his old club when Manchester City take on Borussia Dortmund. And of course, as it's a Wednesday, we have Any Question Answered, where we tackle the queries you've sent in to us, including today's cracker of a question, who is the biggest club in London? That's sure to ruffle a few feathers. My name's Niall, this is Football Social Daily, and doing the ruffling with me today, Jim Salverson's here. Hello, Jim. West Ham, next. (laughs) (laughs) And Joel Tudor's here. What do you think, Joel? I don't really care, because they're nothing on my team's (laughs) level, so whatever. Some might have said Manchester United are the biggest club in London, but, you know, we'll see. Um, We'll get on to those questions later. (laughs) We'll get on to those questions later. Thanks to everyone who sent them in, so stick around on the podcast for that. But the first thing we're going to tackle... On today's show is yesterday's Champions League results, Liverpool and Tottenham both in action. And let's start at Anfield, where Ajax were the visitors to take on Jurgen Klopp's side, who were absolutely demolished last week by Napoli in the same competition. Their weekend match against Wolves, as were all the other Premier League games, was postponed due to the passing of the Queen. So we said, Jim, that Liverpool needed a response in this match against Ajax. Jurgen Klopp asked for a response from his players. He was saying to the media, we need to get back to it. And that's exactly what happened. They left it late, but they got the job done. I'm not sure they necessarily got back to it when you look at the result on the face of it, because you'd expect, and we said this when the Champions League draw was made, we said Liverpool should steamroller that group, even though they had kind of European big names like Ajax and Napoli in there. Ajax aren't the team they once were. They kind of had a few key players pull out over the transfer window and you would have expected them to walk that group, not get beaten 4-0, or four, was it 4-1 or 4-0 in the end? 4-1, I think, 4-1, last wasn't week. it? The horror show. But it could have been more. Jürgen Klopp called it. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have expected that in the opener. And I think you would have expected Liverpool to potentially do a little bit better scoreline-wise in this game. In truth, they probably deserved a bit more and they came out of the blocks looking better than they have in recent weeks. Maybe deserved a couple more goals, but they did leave it late. And it's that old cliche, isn't it? It's like a good team wins no matter what. And mm. I guess you could say they've done that, but Liverpool do need to pick it up this season. They do need to show what they've shown in previous seasons if they're going to 
go well in the Champions League and challenge for the Premier League title again. But they, yeah. they still just don't feel like they're quite there yet. Yeah, good teams win when they don't perform at their best, which is exactly why Pompey picked up another three points yesterday. <laughs> but we'll leave that there for now. I'm, I'm in agreement with Jim here. Joe, I think Liverpool had enough chances to win the game three times over yesterday. The, the Ajax goalkeeper who was in pretty good form. But what I seemed to notice was there was a bit of an air of desperation, I suppose, about how they went about their chances. They were almost snatching at them and rushing them, something we haven't really associated with Liverpool in years gone by. There wasn't that coldness and calmness that we often see when they are in those goal-scoring positions. Why do you think that was? Do you think it's just purely because of the way they lost last week and the situation that they've been in recently? I think it's just an over-eagerness to try and get back on track because they know that if that game would have gone the opposite way, again, there would have been a hell of a lot of mounting pressure on them following that game. But... To be honest, the bottom line of that was I think they were in control for a large amount of it and it should have been more than 2-1 in the end. So I think it was a pretty good performance from them and I think they were only aided by Joel Matip and Thiago coming back. I think those two are pretty colossal for them and I didn't realise just how important, especially Thiago, is in that midfield because without him, he's he's kind of like a metronome. He just keeps things ticking over and they missed that when they had to play either James Milner or Henderson, who I don't believe is fit for that team anymore but having Joel Matip at the back after Joe Gomez has been pretty dodgy in the last few games especially against Napoli um, I think he was massively important for them and I think it's just shown that I don't think there was any doubts of Matip's quality it was just purely because he could never stay fit but the best partnership pairing for Liverpool has always been Van Dijk and Matip together so I think that was a huge plus for them and if them two can stay fit then it should see Liverpool be a little bit more consistent in their games Uh, but I think you have to give a massive shout out to Ajax as well because they managed to reinvent themselves like it seems every single season and I think um, a player who really impressed me for them Mohamed Kudus I think he'll be a massive player to watch in the World Cup for Ghana as well his finish was absolutely unreal it was like a Robin Van Persie left foot in bolt into the top of the net I thought it was going to make a hole in it Um, but I think with Liverpool the biggest thing I noticed was just they were getting the basics right they were pressing really high which forced Ajax who are usually a pretty calm and collected team on the ball to consistently knock it long and I think that's what Liverpool have just been missing to be honest just the very basics that they got totally wrong in the last few games that's true actually that intensity that we've known Liverpool for over the last few seasons did seem to be coming back and that has been missing recently I'll tell you what I don't get about their defensive performance though is why does Virgil van Dijk seem intent on doing a Liam Gallagher impression when he's defending at the moment? <laughs> I don't think he's done it before. And now every time he seems to be going in for a challenge or blocking in the box, he's got both his hands behind his back. I don't know, because we've seen this over the years with players trying to stop handball, haven't we, with holding their hands behind their back and stuff like that. But I don't think that's what it is with van Dijk. It almost feels like he's too afraid to get close to the man. It's it, weird. It's odd because, you know, it in the videos that I've seen of him doing that he doesn't seem to be close enough to the defender or to the attacker for it to really be effective I mean it clearly is a fear of handball that, that's the only reason but it's very difficult to be mobile I mean you try running with your hands behind your back it's yeah. very it's really difficult but, I mean you only need to look at Thursday's um, Europa League game between Manchester United and Real Sociedad and the goal that Sociedad scored was a penalty from what was an extremely harsh handball against Lisandro Martinez mm. where the ball was shot against his thigh, it deflected up onto his arm and because the rules in UEFA are interpreted differently to the rules we have in the Premier League, it was awarded as a spot kick, Sociedad score it and they win the game. So I can understand why maybe holding the hands behind their back but I'm glad you mentioned the defending, Jim, because Ajax did have a number of chances and Joel's right to pick out the finish from Kudus which was an excellent shot right into the top corner. I think it flicked the crossbar on the way in as well. So... You know, it wasn't like Liverpool, as as you know, you said before, were were back to their familiar selves, where they were solid at the back and ruthless in attack. It wasn't quite like that. You know, they still had to ride out a few chances. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to that intensity, I think, doesn't it, for Liverpool, in that their pressing causes it make make causes the opposition to have problems developing in any part of the pitch, and once they start to lose that intensity, that's when play can build for the opponent whoever they are and because they haven't been quite like I said they were better last night there was more intensity for their performance but they probably weren't where they were midway through last season or even the season before so I think it's when a team is conceding goals it's very easy to point the finger at the defence and go 
this is the issue there. But Liverpool are quite unique in that regard, in that they defend all over the pitch, they press high, their forward line does as much defending as their back line. And particularly when you've got fullbacks like Trent Alexander-Arnold and Robinson, then Robertson rather, then you have to spread that defensive duty mm. because those players, they're not there solely to stop the opposition scoring goals. They're there to develop play as well. Yeah. So it's not just, it's not purely an issue with their back line, Liverpool. It's an issue with potentially the way they've gone into this season where they don't quite look ready. Yeah, I mean, obviously no Andy Robertson last night. He was uh, replaced by Simicast. Not sure when he'll be back for Liverpool, but they got the job done thanks to a, a Joel Matip header. And I was pleased to see that the goal line technology and the referee's watch, as you'd expect, bleeped instantly. The whistle was blown. And for all the annoyance we've had over VAR and technology in the game in the last few weeks, it worked really well last night. It was fast. It was efficient. It didn't hamper the spontaneity of the Liverpool celebrations with only a few minutes to go. So I enjoyed seeing that. And I think credit where credit's due. We can slag off technology. But when it works, you need to give it its due as well. Uh, Champions League last night, Liverpool 2, Ajax 1. Important win for the Reds but certainly a disappointing defeat for Tottenham Hotspur because that's where we're heading next as Sporting the club from Portugal beat Spurs by two goals to nil 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 was going to be the final result until a last minute flurry from the Portuguese side undid Tottenham the worst possible way to lose a game Joel isn't it to lose in the dying stages like that but do you think that's what Sporting deserved in the end because they made it really hard for Tottenham with a number of chances yeah I think Sporting was so impressive yesterday I think we said in yesterday's podcast and I mentioned I thought Spurs would win but that's not because Sporting are a bad team I thought it was just purely because Spurs would have too much for them in terms of quality considering Sporting's budget is not the best and they have been taken of their best players in the summer, but this isn't no surprise. If anyone's seen Sporting over the last couple of years, I mean, even last year in the Champions League, they finished second in their group above Dortmund, who had Haaland at the time, and they managed to beat them 3-1 at home. Like They're an impressive side, and they've got such a young coach as well, Ruben Amarin, um, who they paid 15 million euros for to get him out of Braga, which is a really high amount for a Portuguese club to pay. I'm and sorry to cut you off. Do you think we'll see him in a bigger European league with no disrespect to the Portuguese league in the future because it seems like he's a manager, a bit like Graham Potter, I suppose, who's got his move to Chelsea. He's a manager that has turned a few heads in the last few years. Oh, for sure. He'll definitely get a big move to one of the bigger clubs. I think he was touted for the Paris Saint-Germain job just before uh, Galtier got the job there and he's completely galvanised the, the club again where he started to get back to basics of taking the youth system which has always produced amazing players um, got some key experience some of the best more talented players from other clubs in Portugal and it really showed yesterday even when you looked at Marcus Edwards who they actually got from the Spurs Academy he almost scored the goal of the tournament where he went on an amazing run it was just so similar to Eden Hazard against Arsenal if everyone remembers where Coquelin seemed to just get absolutely repelled back like it was a north and south magnet it was ridiculous <laughs> his run and um, I just thought these performances from them were just no surprise and they probably will get out of the group and that's purely because they have such a talented coach leading them and you know with Spurs I've always said this season they haven't really got out of second gear but neither had Sporting they're seventh in the Primera Liga at the moment they haven't really got into form just yet but they looked so much more compact and so much more fluid compared to Spurs and the better team on the night won the game and they didn't lose to a bad team yesterday, Spurs, so they can take no discredit from it because Sporting were impressive. But again, I think all eyes will be on Antonio Conte who just doesn't seem to change his style for any team. He's always insistent on selecting the same kind of approach and I think it was the wrong one. Of course, they scored two in the last three minutes, but it was coming for them throughout the game. Um, so I think for Spurs, it's... I think it's a massive reality check and if they don't get their act together quickly they've got some more difficult ties in that group which may prove to be even more difficult than they actually are when the pressure starts mounting on them but you have to give your props to Lisbon because they have such a young talented team and I just hope it doesn't get picked apart again next summer because it looks like an Ajax-esque kind of regen in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you look at the players they've managed to produce, you feel like they'll be able to replace them if they do leave. You know, you only need to look at the likes of Bruno Fernandes, for example, who left Sporting Lisbon and has made a success of himself in the Premier League. 
Cristiano Ronaldo is probably the most obvious example. Mm. There's so many examples. So you think they'll be able to regenerate if they do get picked apart. You mentioned Marcus Edwards. I'll come back to him in a second because I think he's worth a special mention. But let's look at Emerson Royal. Um, Not such a positive light around him. The Tottenham defender didn't really defend, did he? It was questionable at the very best. Um, Nutmegged for the second goal. Just looked a little bit slow and sloppy. And Antonio Conte, as much as he's quite rigid in the way he sets his teams up as Joel says and in the way that his record in Europe isn't actually as strong as you might expect he's not going to stand for that Jim is he that sort of defending he's going to try and shake that out of Emerson as quick as he can yeah I mean it's easy to point fingers isn't it Uh, someone like Emerson Royal who's made a couple of mistakes and resulted in a couple of goals but it's the life of being a defender to a certain extent and if you do make an error at the back Mm then that quite often results in your team being punished. And we've seen it with Eric Dyer previously as well, who's been pillared by Tottenham fans for doing similar things, but yep. he's now a rock in that Tottenham defence. And in all fairness, I think Lloris probably kept Tottenham in it at times last night with mm. two or three really good saves. And so you can't pin that all on one member of the back line, can no, you? No, and I'd actually, I'd almost say, I think I don't think Tottenham's issues are defensively. I think... Yeah, they conceded two late goals last night and Sporting Lisbon had some great chances. But actually, the problems for me kind of stem from the type of football that Conte wants to play because he wants to play this defence-first, pragmatic football that we know he likes and we know he's delivered before. But actually, when he's playing that type of football, they're too reliant on Harry Kane and Son mm. being 100% at the top of their game. And, and they Son obviously fire. hasn't been. Son's no, exactly. not really been involved in the way that you might expect. And if they're not firing, then Tottenham don't fire. They don't play in the same way. And it feels like they kind of need... They need a Marcus Edwards. <laughs> they need someone in the yeah. centre of the park driving forward mm. and making things happen. So, yeah, Emerson Royal made mistakes last night. But actually, should Spurs be in a position where, with a few minutes to go on the clock, they are at nil-nil? against a team like Sporting Lisbon. They should be putting those ties to bed earlier. And to do that, they need to play a more attacking, more threatening style of football, maybe. Yeah, and with respect to Spurs and this competition, they are back in the Champions League after a few years away. They're not a Champions League regular like someone like Manchester City or Liverpool or Chelsea, who are undoubtedly the teams that qualify every season. Mm -hmm. Tottenham have had a couple of years in, a couple of years away, a couple of years in, a couple of years away. And I think that sometimes as a playing group, that can be hard to adjust to, even though it is just another football match. The whole sort of atmosphere and environment of the Champions League can sometimes be tough to adapt to. And they've still got this Spursy thing hanging over them as well, which adds to the pressure of performance, yeah, particularly when you're Yeah, I think knocked them out of that a little bit. I, but well, I don't know, has he? Have, have we seen any evidence that Spurs aren't Spursy yet? I mean, they aren't. It's a ridiculous thing to say that Spurs have this inbuilt thing where they self-destruct with a few minutes to go. But every time, I mean, every team loses to a late goal or bottles it in a competition at some point. It just happens. But the fact that Spurs have this kind of characteristic inverted commas that's put upon them means every time something like last night happens, people go, oh, Spurs are back to being Spursy. The thing is with Spurs, I think that they are in a lose-lose situation a lot of the time because unless Antonio Conte delivers them the Champions League or the Premier League, which, let's face it, is just not going to happen, Mm -hmm. then... Even if they do win a trophy, their first since 2008, people are going to go, oh, it's only a League Cup. Oh, it's only an FA Cup. Oh, it's only a Europa League. And, you know, it's almost as if that that doesn't qualify as an achievement. So I do think it's you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, if you're a Tottenham fan at times. Um, I wanted to talk about Marcus Edwards. I said a minute ago that we're going to focus on him. As you mentioned, Joel, an incredible run from him through the game, but it wasn't his only opportunity. He really did catch the eye against his former club. Of course, he came through the Tottenham Academy before leaving to play his trade in Portugal with uh, Guimaraes, Vitoria. Um, and he did really well there and, and got the move subsequently to the capital and to play for Sporting. He was very lively. And do you think that from what we saw on that showing, Gareth Southgate might be looking at him as a potential England player in the future? In the future, yeah. I don't think for this World Cup, I think it's come a little bit too soon and you can't be making all these brash judgments based off, you know, a decent game against Spurs. He needs to keep producing it in the Champions League, especially because, I mean, that's the highest quality. I don't think it's fair to be able to judge a player playing in Portugal because you can have so many other great English players playing in and out in the Premier League who will be performing to a much higher level. But he's definitely one to watch there. And I think you have to give... 
some really good props to these young English English players who are actually taking a chance and going abroad and trying to make a name for themselves because I think in the past, maybe pre-Sancho going to, to Dortmund, it seemed like English players were all, all in or nothing on English clubs and if they didn't make it there, that was it. They wouldn't try. It was just and... Owen Hargreaves, wasn't it? If you yeah. look at those squads that Svenja and Eriksson and Capello used to take to the World Cup, and the Euros, it was literally just Owen Hargreaves, the only one in a foreign league. And he brought something different to the team as well. You could see how he was coached tactically. Even when he came to United, he he brought something new to the midfield. And that's because he's been trained in a different way and in a different culture. And I think that's why the English national team is getting better and better. Because you're seeing more and more players daring to try. As we've seen with Tamori, Tammy Abraham. They're all immersing themselves in a new culture. And I think when you see the likes of Marcus Edwards... It's probably the perfect environment for him to try and progress and maybe get back into the Premier League because he's getting chances. Sporting are one of the biggest clubs in Portugal. They have an amazing support. It's an amazing city to live in. And I think if he can continue in that way, for sure, a Premier League club will 100% take a punt on him. And for for now, I think it's best to, for him to keep playing his trade there and not leave too soon, which I think can be tempting if you're starting to get your name up. But... I think for now, I think Southgate will 100% have him on his radar, but it's way too early to say based on you know a quick start in the season. I'll Pochettino be honest, compared him to Messi he did, when yeah. he was back at Tottenham. Well, the run last night that he went on was very similar to the sort of runs that you see Messi mm. go on. And I think comparing a player to Messi is the worst thing you could ever do. Well, but, everyone gets compared to someone, doesn't it? It's like oh, yeah. someone's either the next... Lionel Messi or the I've, new every Ronaldo single player or whatever that's been it is. the next has never been the next. No, <laughs> I've never seen them again. Mind you, if I was Marcus Edwards, you're not really selling the Premier League there to me, Joel. I think I'd quite happily stay in Lisbon, drink Superbop, play golf. <laughs> oh, so would pass I. Ice to Get some bacalao down. Yeah, exactly. It's you know, it seems like a good place to be playing your football at the moment, especially in your early twenties. So. Disappointment for Spurs. They lost 2-0 to Sporting. Liverpool, they beat Ajax by two goals to one. How will Chelsea and Manchester City fare in their Champions League games tonight? We'll talk about that next after this here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast from Sport Social. Just a quick reminder that on Monday, due to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, we won't be releasing a podcast in line with the rest of the UK as it is a national holiday. But fear not, loads of content to come from us right up until that point, including Shots, which is our bite-sized Premier League podcast we release on a daily basis, rounding up all of the news you might have missed and the ones that we and the stories that we did not discuss on the day's podcast. So make sure you hit subscribe and you won't miss that. Now we're going to talk about tonight's Champions League matches involving Chelsea and Manchester City and it's at Stamford Bridge where we're going to begin where Salzburg are the visitors. A quick reminder that there will be no Champions League anthem, black armbands will be worn and the national anthem will not be played due to that request being rejected by UEFA that won't be played at Rangers, Manchester City or Chelsea. So UEFA have said no to that but there will be commemorative measures in place. I think that's right by the way. I think the if you played the national anthem it's unnecessarily antagonistic to the opposition. We saw well-observed silences last night, but I think if you started playing the 
English national anthem, say, for example, Man City versus... At the weekend in the Premier League, you might see Yeah, I mean, you've got to look at the... I mean, let's get into geopolitics a little bit, but you've got to look at the reputation the UK has in Europe at the moment and throughout history and go, the empire... Empironic, is that even a word? Imperialistic. Yeah, yeah. imperialistic, that's it. Overtones of the national anthem don't always go down too well on foreign soil. So I think... I think the respect that's being showed with black arm and yeah. armbands and silence is probably appropriate. Yeah, and like we said before, there will be an opportunity to sing the national anthem God Save the King this weekend at Premier League matches for the supporters and those in attendance there. It will be Graham Potter's first game as Chelsea manager though, Jim, also his first Champions League game. And what he revealed in his press conference was that it's his first Champions League game in any form. He's not even been to a game really? <laughs> as a scout, as a, a punter, nothing. So his first experience of the Champions League tonight and his first game in charge of Chelsea. How do you think he'll be feeling? He'll be excited, no doubt. I mean, it's a massive occasion for Graham Potter and it's a massive occasion for Chelsea Football Club as well as they enter this new horizon but, I mean, it, it's almost a shame for him, I suppose, that the Champions League music won't be played because what a feeling that would be, stepping out, supporting your first club, first game, and you've mm. got that iconic Champions League music. Yeah, I think because the Champions the League theme is based off of Zadok the Priest, which yeah. is an anthem from Handel, the composer, which is used to coronate new kings and queens in the UK. So that's that's the reason why there will be no Champions League music, by yeah, the way. Yeah, and it's appropriate there isn't. But I think from Graham Potter's point of view, it's probably a little bit of a disappointment that that's the case. As for what we can expect from Chelsea... He might get sacked before the next Champions League <laughs> yeah, game. So. Um, it's too early, in it, to expect there to be any huge difference in terms of what Chelsea are producing on the pitch. He's had under a week at the Cobham training ground in order mm-hmm. to kind of put his footballing philosophy into those players so I don't think we're going to see any huge changes it will be interesting to see what side gets picked yeah and who he decides to is going to lead the line particularly whether he's going to go for Aubameyang or whether he sees potential in the youth of Broha it'll be really interesting to see that but I think it's too early to expect to see the kind of the free-flowing football Mm. that we've come to expect from Graham Potter that footballing philosophy to really take effect I think what Graham Potter's done really well which has won him a lot of plaudits Joel is the fact that he's taken almost unknown players or players who are perceived to be average at best and turned them into very good very effective and efficient players when he comes into Chelsea and selects the team to start tonight against Salzburg in the Champions League he's looking at players who with no disrespect to Brighton are already very well established and excellent players most of them will be full internationals if not all of them so it's a different type of management a different type of coaching I wonder what his approach will be how do you see Potter setting up Chelsea do you think we'll see a replica of what he did with Brighton playing the wing backs how do you think he'll approach the whole thing I think he has to kind of adapt to the team because like you mentioned their team is pretty much set to play as those wing backs like Mark Kukurea and Rhys James I think both of their best positions are in that position and they're so stacked with top centre-backs that I think it just works. It's just going to be a really different proposition for him because like you mentioned, he's used to developing players who come from the absolute unknown and then make a name for themselves and become gems in a pretty, you know, with all due respect, a small team. Whereas now he's got superstars on his hands. You know, he's got the likes of Khalidou Koulibaly who's a... AFCON winner and played in the Champions League for the last decade and all these different Raheem Sterling who's won multiple titles and Kai Havertz won Champions League it's it's totally different he's now the small fish in a big pond in terms of going into that dressing room and being the person who has won the least basically so it'll be interesting to see how he can stamp his, his, his authority in such a dressing room because I know it's not comparable to Paris Saint-Germain but I've always felt that one of their main issues has been that managers come in and they're smaller than the players. You know, the likes of Neymar, Messi, that I don't think you'll ever get a manager who's bigger than them unless they command respect, you know, for the, for the likes of Zinedine Zidane, for example. Um, so I think in this scenario, I don't even think it's a case of them needing a new manager bounce or anything like that because under Thomas Tuchel, I feel like it was just him trying to get the jigsaw fit together because there were so many new pieces that all needed to gel. I mean, let's not forget, they've basically bought a whole new back line this summer after Christensen and Alonso and Rudiger have all left and Azpilicueta's not getting any younger, Tago Silva's not getting any younger. So it, they've had a big summer this year and I feel like 
it's just going to be a case of trying to mold that together and having a play style which basically fits a new identity whatever he's going to put on the team so I'm really interested to see how he copes and it's not going to be an easy game because Salzburg themselves have got such a unique playing style if everyone knows about the RB project they produce ridiculous numbers of players Uh, Benjamin Sesko is a big one that uh, is one to watch who was linked with the United in the summer so it's going to be a really interesting game because Salzburg they have nothing to lose in this game all the players know that eyes are on their team if they have a big performance they'll have scouts everywhere on them so it's a massive game for them too let's not forget so it'll be a really interesting tie for Potter on his first home game with Chelsea yeah and Graham Potter when he was at Brighton actually signed some players from Salzburg so he'll know as well as anyone how good and how dangerous they can be lots of young hungry players players and you mentioned the names we said it with Ajax we said it with Sporting and Salzburg are another one of those clubs Erling Haaland Minamino Patson Dacca all players that have played in the Premier League or are still playing in the Premier League now have all come through Salzburg and that's not to mention some of the others I think did Sadio Mane also come through the Red Bull stable I think he might have done so you know there's just a handful of names so they've got a chance to upset the apple cart and really disappoint Graham Potter on his first outing as Chelsea manager. That's tonight at Stamford Bridge. And tonight at the Etihad, Manchester City take on Dortmund. And the aforementioned Erling Haaland will be at the forefront tonight because he's up against his old club. So too is Akanji, a new summer signing at the Etihad, up against his former employers. Do you think, Jim, that Haaland coming up against Dortmund so soon in his Manchester City career will give him that extra fire to perform tonight? Not that he needs it, of course. Um I, I, we should have expected it really because I think Man City have got it written into some kind of contract with the devil that they play Borussia Dortmund every single Champions League campaign it seems to be the case <laughs> I don't know about Haaland I mean I'm not entirely sure how much affection he's got for Borussia Dortmund because ultimately and I'm sure Dortmund fans won't like to hear this it was a pre-arranged stepping stone right it was always going to be Salzburg Dortmund Man City I'm pretty sure that was written into contracts and agreed way before he even left Salzburg in the first place so I don't think he's it's not like this is the club he grew up at this is the club he signed for as a youngster but at the same time everyone loves to score against their old teams Mm. don't they they like to be able to score and then either rub it in the fans face or show that respect and kind of do that oh I'm refusing to celebrate yeah is it too much to say that he made his name at Dortmund or did he make his name at Salzburg because he was scoring goals in the Champions League at Salzburg wasn't he yeah and I think everyone expected him to turn out to be this beast when he was playing in Austria and then he's just stepped it up at Dortmund maybe maybe he proved his name if that's even a phrase if he made his name at Salzburg and he proved he could do it at Dortmund, but I mean, I don't know what a fired up early Haaland would even look like. Well, he's always fired up, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. He's scoring hat tricks every other week at the moment. So, how can you expect any more out of him? How can you expect him to do any more when he's really on his game? It's just City have found the missing piece of the puzzle. I think that is undoubted now. They found their, to coin Arsene Wenger's phrase, their fox in the box, their guy mm. who can get on the end of those pullbacks into the six-yard box and has a deadly eye for finishing. But naturally, Manchester City have lost some key performers who have helped them in the last few years. They've lost the likes of Raheem Sterling, who's who's left the club and obviously bringing Haaland in, he's hit the ground running with goals. But if you look at the back, I think they conceded three against Newcastle. They mm. conceded a couple against Crystal Palace. And I know this is the Premier League. It can be quite unpredictable. Do you think that with all of that focus on the top end of the pitch that maybe there is a few questions towards Manchester City's defence or is it is it just one of those things where they just had a couple of games where they've conceded some goals? I think it's exactly that. I mean, potentially, if you're throwing so much forward and you want to play attacking football, you're always going to leave yourself open at the back slightly, but there's no doubt that Manchester City have the personnel all over the pitch to perform. And you look at their the back line, you look at the defenders they do have available, they are all top of their game they're world class Laporte, Diaz even Nathan Ake I'd say is having a pretty decent season John Stones Mm. as well they're all defenders that are well capable of performing at the absolute top level so I don't expect the few goals they will concede to be too much of an issue for Pep Guardiola this season As for their opponents Borussia Dortmund we said that the Premier League's got off to a bit of a wild start and I think you said that the Premier League was drunk a couple of weeks ago Jim with some of the results we've seen if you look at the Bundesliga Dortmund are currently fifth not the best start to the season they've lost a couple of games but Union Berlin are top of the table I think Freiburg are second 
uh, Hoffenheim a fourth. It doesn't look like your usual Bundesliga table. But does that sort of thing matter, Joel, when the Champions League rolls around? Do you think that the league form is put to one side and particularly when you're away from home like Dortmund will be tonight? I was just going to say, how cool is it that Berlin have finally got a good football team? (laughs) If you look into the Union Berlin story, it's actually really interesting of how they've rose in the Bundesliga, but... I think we're um, only six games in. Let's remember that. I mean, it's not exactly it, no. It is, but I mean, when you when you're a top when you're on top of buying, you need to just take every yeah. single plaudit available because they will start trampling on everyone soon enough. Uh, but with Dortmund, it was always going to be a difficult task, wasn't it, to try and replace all those goals that Haaland scored for them. I mean, I remember so clearly that Paris Saint-Germain game in the Champions League knockouts where he absolutely destroyed them at the. Uh, Signal Iduna Stadium and obviously they bought Sebastian Aller who obviously is unfortunately going through really difficult illness at the moment and he was probably going to be a really good replacement for them after he himself had an amazing Champions League campaign uh, just last year so for Dortmund they'll always have a strong group of players they've not got the best players to actually replace those goals at the moment I mean Marco Royce is a is a player who's getting older Obviously, you've got Jude Bellingham, who's basically the the gem in the side at the moment. But it's when you're playing against Manchester City, although you would say it should be a straightforward game for them, I've been looking at City's last games and there is some weakness at the back. And we've seen that with some of the goals that they've scored in the Premier League so far this season. And you would suggest that with Dortmund, they will be there or thereabouts in the top four of the Bundesliga, but they just don't have enough to keep up with the likes of Bayern at the moment because the firepower is just a completely different level. So it should be an interesting game. But as we saw last year when Dortmund played Manchester City, they actually gave them an amazing game. Um, I think I remember when Jude Bellingham got a really unlucky goal ruled out after Edison came out and uh, touched the ball with his hands. But I think it's just going to be a one-way street, this one, purely because City have just got so much firepower and I don't know where the firepower is coming from in that Dortmund side uh, so far. Yeah, I, I seem to remember Jude Bellingham getting in trouble for a post-match interview, some comments he made after that game, or maybe I'm thinking of another game, but he's certainly one to, to keep an eye on as well with the World Cup coming up. Manchester City versus Dortmund tonight in the Champions League, along with Chelsea against Salzburg. We'll have reaction to those two fixtures on tomorrow's episode of Football Social Daily. But today, as it's a Wednesday, it's time for any questions answered. You send in your questions, we try to answer them, and we'll do it next. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. Final part of today's Football Social Daily is AQA. All questions answered. You send them into us via social media, whether that be Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or our new Telegram chat. You can join in the football discussion from Football Social Daily listeners and us. We're all in the group by downloading the Telegram app or just go to our pinned tweet at FSDPod on Twitter or you can send your question in via DM there and just click the link at the top of that pin tweet and it will take you straight to Telegram and you can join in the discussion. More on Telegram a little bit later because we do have a question from Liam from Telegram but first Mitchell's question on Twitter and he says how do your expectations change for Brighton and Hove Albion going forward? I was on board thinking they could push for Europe this season but I'm sceptical of that now with Graham Potter having moved to Chelsea. I'll come to you first Jim We saw Brighton in a similar position at this stage of Mm. last season. They were in the top four. Some people are saying that they could finish in Europe. Graham Potter's got them off to a good start this season. But as Mitchell rightly says, he's moved on to Chelsea. How much of an impact do you think that will have on Brighton? They seem to be a club who have a good idea of what their contingency plans are, what their succession plans are. We don't know who the new manager is yet, but rumours suggesting there's been hundreds of applicants for the new Brighton job. Whoever it is that comes in is going to have a job on their hands to to replace the job that Graham Potter did, and even more so if they are going to finish in Europe. 
Yeah, I mean, firstly, would they be pushing for Europe if Graham Potter remained at Brighton? No. I'm not sure because you've got to remember they finished top 10 last season, which is the first time they've is, ever done that in history. Which is a brilliant result unbelievable. for Brighton. But to expect them to push to top six is a little bit crazy. Yeah, they're in fourth at the moment, but you also look at the start they've had to the season. They haven't really been tested bar arguably Manchester United who have not been at the races they played my team West Ham we weren't at the races and that was the first day of the season the Manchester United game wasn't it yeah so, you know strange results can happen on the opening day so I don't think we've really seen what Brighton have got to offer yet this season but I think European football would have been just out of their reach will Graham Potter leaving have an impact of course it will because Graham Potter is one of the rising stars of management at the moment it's exactly the reason that Chelsea have gone after him because he has got a lot to offer in terms of a team and when you've got a manager that offers what Graham Potter offers and plays with the philosophy that Graham Potter offers as well then it's going to be difficult to find a replacement for that person but will it damage Brighton too much I don't think it will because exactly as you say they are really good in terms of planning ahead and looking at the succession, be it players or managers. They seem to be looking two, three years in the future and have the personnel outlined or earmarked that they're going to bring in. So I suspect, even though there's a 100 or applicants for the Brighton & Hove Albion job, I've got a feeling they'll know exactly who they want and who they're going to get already. And they, they would have had an idea that Graham Potter was going to leave. Maybe not this soon, but maybe in the summer. So mm-hmm. I think there'll be a plan in place to continue what he's established at Brighton going forward. What sort of level do you think Brighton are at? We've spoken about them in terms of on the pitch, but in terms of off the pitch, Joel, and the sort of name they might be able to attract, the calibre of manager, will they be looking for another Graham Potter type, someone who's plied his trade in the lesser leagues and will want a chance at a big job, a crack at the big time in the Premier League? Or do you think they'll be looking for another man-manager style type? Graham Potter was said to be very good at that as well as a good tactician. Do you think they'll be looking for the next Graham Potter to continue their evolution? Or do you think they'll be looking for something different? Well, I feel like now they have an identity in terms of what club they are, how they want to play, and the structure is all there, ready-made for the next manager to just go seamlessly into it. It's going to be interesting to see who they actually take because I remember when Pochettino actually left uh, Southampton he left such a huge mark on that club in terms of the way they played and then it kind of just dissolved into the mist into the into the abyss and they didn't really play like that ever again I don't know if that's purely because they never got a manager of his quality ever again into the into the club but with Brighton I'm sure they're not going to want to pass up on this era that they're in at the moment which is having a really promising set of players a really strong way of going about doing business and how strong their recruiting network is that they're not going to want to recruit very hastily and you know get a manager in such as no disrespect but you know Sean Dyche for example I don't feel as though he'd fit the mould there just because they're on a different really why not (laughs) I I mean mean, he plays some beautiful football does Sean Dyche but no Sean Dyche always said that he played the type of football he played because of what he had available for him at Burnley so maybe we're doing him a huge discredit. Maybe he is like Guardiola in the, the Guardiola of the North. Guardiola, so the Guardiola just, of the North. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're just saying he needs the players at his disposal, and we're going to see the young Ginger Mourinho come out in the flesh at Brighton. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're going to see. Oh gosh, no. I, I think they need. I think, for example, I know it wouldn't happen, but you know, Ruben Amorin. I know he'll be looking higher to the higher clubs in Europe, but someone who is right now progressive and is really talented. I think that's the kind of manager that that they're going to be looking for. They're not going to be able to get him, of course, but someone who is you know young has new fresh ideas. In the same way, Julian Nagelsmann was got by. Um, by Bayern obviously started off at Hoffenheim and started really impressing different clubs so I think they need that kind of manager where they're young they've got new ideas because I feel like if they start delving into the manager pool which is I don't want to say washed up but it's got old ideas which is not where the club is going at the moment then I don't think they'll fall victim to that though because they're such a well-run club if you look at some of the names that the bookies are touting as potential replacements There are some names that I've never heard of, some names that I have heard of, but one that really stood out to me, having just looked through the the long list, and it is a long list of potential candidates for the next manager of Brighton and Hove Albion. Steve Cooper is at 6-1, to the Nottingham Forest manager. 
Jim. Mm. He seems someone who is akin to Graham Potter in that he's well-respected, he's done a good job with a, a decent club, and is that too much of a stretch to imagine him jumping ship from Nottingham Forest, who have only just returned to the Premier League, to Brighton and Hove Albion, considering Brighton will have a bit of money to spend because they've got a 16 million quid payout from Chelsea for Potter's services, so they could afford to get him. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, whether Nottingham Forest allow those conversations to happen or not, I don't know. They've got a relatively wealthy owner who can afford not to bite the hand off of someone that offers them a huge fee in compensation. But he seems to fit the Brighton mould and certainly from what I've seen from Brighton and Hove Albion fans as well, he's the manager that many want. But don't believe too much what you see of the next manager odds. I think I saw Harry Redknapp being linked with the potential gig a couple of weeks ago. So, or when... Potter was first announced he was leaving so you never know whether the bookies have this stuff right or where they're getting names from it's all bet it's all based on who's putting bets on who in it rather than anything yeah. else but I think certainly Cooper feels like he would be a good fit providing he wants to go and he wants to leave that project at Forest and yeah. providing that Forest sorry providing that Brighton are happy to spend the cash on getting his services in He's sixes, Steve Cooper, but the odds-on favourite is the manager of Ligue 1 club Lens, uh, Frank Hayes, his name is. And Lens finished seventh in Ligue 1 last season, above Lyon, above Lille, and, you know, only four points off of the Champions League spots. So it seems very similar in terms of the size of club, where they finished in the table. They've started this season really well as well. Lons third at the moment in Liga. And that's what Brighton do. They've got this scouting network and they've got this ability to kind of spread their tentacles all over Europe and find <laughs> these these uh, these little gems and these unknown people with potential. So, I mean, that's the kind of appointment. I couldn't tell you anything about Frank Haynes. I've got no, no idea who he is. Never even heard of him. I haven't been keeping an eye on Leon that closely. But I'm sure Brighton know a bit more about him than we do. Yeah, so. I'm sure they do. Those are the thoughts of Jim, myself and Joel on who could be the next Brighton manager and where Brighton go after Graham Potter. But you can get a more in-depth and insightful opinion from the Brighton Rock podcast, a fan cast part of the Sports Social Podcast Network, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. Moving on to the next question, and this is a good one. It's a juicy one, and I'm glad we've got a West Ham fan in the studio with us to help discuss it. This one comes from Liam Ems on our Telegram chat, which you can join by downloading the Telegram app and just click on the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile, at FSDpod, and it will take you straight to the group chat. Loads of us in there talking all things Premier League football, and this is a belting question. Who's the biggest club in London? There are so many potential answers to this. Jim, you said jokingly West Ham. Mm-hmm. West Ham are massive everywhere you go. Biggest club in London, like I said. (laughs) Stake your claim for West Ham. Come on, Jim. I mean, West Ham aren't the biggest club in London. (laughs) That's the the truth of it. We're in the relegation zone at the moment. But, I mean, there is certainly potential at my football club to climb that footballing ladder and be a contender in the top four. But I think to claim they're the biggest club. I mean, it's a a ridiculous question who's the biggest club in any kind of respect isn't it how do you establish who is the biggest club but well who's the most successful club I guess we could do it on trophies we could do it on fan base I mean Arsenal and Chelsea for me are the two clear front runners and that's fair enough to Spurs we've got a huge stadium the biggest stadium in London apart from Wembley of course and they've got a lot of history and they much like all the other clubs in the country have a passionate fan base but in terms of bona fide success it's Chelsea and Arsenal isn't it? Yeah well I think if you look at it over the last decade you've got to say Chelsea if Mm -hmm. it's based on the current state of the team and what they've won over the past decade it's 100% Chelsea in terms of potential who I think over the next decade has the potential to be the biggest inverted commas club in London Brentford Yeah (laughs) I think it's (laughs) Arsenal I think yeah. they've they, they felt like a sleeping giant for a long time and mm. they've become a bit of a figure of fun. Well, it, partly it's because nearly of 20 the... years. Is it 20 years this year or next year that they did their Invincible season? Yeah. And, you know, that period where it was Fenger and Fergie just going hammer and tong, Arsenal would win it one season, then United would come back. Arsenal would win an FA Cup, then United yeah. would win one. You know, that dominance was shared for a few years by, by Arsenal, wasn't it? So and they've had this period of trying to find an identity again and kind of reinventing that club and they've had managers that have come in and haven't worked for them that have tried different approaches but they seem to be in a place now where they've got the stadium they've got the financial setup 
and they've got a manager who seems to have a vision for the future of yeah. that football club and seems to be bringing in the players. And you can't doubt that they've set the pace in the Premier League this season. Again, mm. a little bit like my criticism of Brighton, they've maybe had an easy run at the start of the season and unlike Brighton, they came up against Manchester United and came unstuck. So who knows where they'll be at the end of the season, but I think certainly you kind of they're one of the few clubs that you look at from that little collection and go, they seem to know what they're doing. They seem to have a vision for the next five years and know what they want to achieve. So as much as it pains me to say it, I think Arsenal are the team with potential. Do you know what? I think if Arsenal win the Premier League or win a big trophy in the next couple of years, I have to agree with you. Chelsea, as you say, have been the dominant London club in recent years with Champions League wins and Premier League victories. But I think Arsenal have a, a bigger fan base than Chelsea, albeit it's close. And I think that if they do start getting back to where they used to be, I think that Arsenal very much could be considered the biggest club in London. But that's up for debate, of course. Apologies to Fulham fans, QPR fans and <laughs> Leighton Orient fans as well Palace. for not including you in that discussion. <laughs> and on to the final one of today's AQA, uh, which is a question from Pete. And he says, what do you boys make of Todd Bowley's suggestion there should be an all-star Premier League game, <laughs> the North versus the South? Now, this has got MLS All-Stars written all over it, hasn't it? The league champions against the rest of the, the division team. It's a very American idea. But is it an idea, Joel, that you can see getting off the ground? Because we've heard stranger ideas in football that have actually come to fruition. Honestly, I don't see anything wrong with it, to be oh, honest. Oh, Joel, and if, if you've I'm, gone commercial. No, listen, no, 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 no. Hear me out, hear me out on this one. Basically... If the money's going to, like he said, to the football pyramid or to the charities, I don't see anything wrong with that whatsoever because, if we're honest, the Community Shield is a pretty drab event, mainly just a day out to Wembley, and I don't think there'd be any. And what is the vision for this to replace the Community Shield? Well, well, let's say that's the case. For example, if they needed a slot in the season, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I I think it would have to replace the Community Shield because you don't want another non- meaningful game in the schedule i mean we've spoken so often about how many games there are well if you think about it in from his perspective and i can understand why people push back in this country for this kind of thing because in the states rivalries are a little bit more symbolic rather than rooted into the culture and traditions of the society so when you look at for example the rivalries between the bulls and the detroit pistols back in the nba in the late 80s that was purely because it was two good teams against each other. It was nothing to do with City versus City, although it kind of eased into that because the rivalry was so fierce. But here, no matter how bad a team is, you know, Leeds versus United, even though Leeds were in the championship for a good amount of time, the rivalry was always there whenever we played them in the FA Cup, for example, or when Manchester City were a team that was fighting relegation on mid-table, the rivalry was always there. And because they're franchises as well, they can move to any city. So it kind of removes the purpose of what a rivalry is. But I feel like in this country, especially with the older people, and hear me out on this, I feel like there's a lot of gatekeeping when it comes to English football because I've been looking recently at kind of these trends that I've been seeing, especially with what pundits have said. For example, if everyone remembers when Pep Guardiola came to the Premier League, And he got absolutely killed in his first season for trying to attempt to play out of the back. And it was almost like people in this country took offence to it as if to say, how dare you try and play out of the back in English football in our league? It will never work. And then suddenly it works. He's become one of the most dominant teams in English football. Everyone said back then, oh, this is English football. It's not Spanish football. It'll never work. It worked. And now every other team has tried to replicate it to an extent. And then you looked at Jamie Carragher recently when he said when Manchester United signed Lissandro Martinez, a five foot nine centre-back will never work in English football. How dare he try to put an English a, a small centre-back into a team? Suddenly, he's become one of the best players in the United side so far. He's been one of the best performers. He's, be- he's, he's barely lost an aerial duel in any of the games he's played. So from this standpoint, it's almost like it's such a gatekeeping mentality where they're so deep-rooted in these traditions that you can't change anything. And when someone comes in, mainly from abroad, and tries to switch things up and change the status quo, it's almost like they take offence to it as if they say, you can't change my football philosophy and you can't change the way football is. But those are on-the-pitch things, Joel, and I get exactly what you're saying and I agree with what you say about both Martinez and It's the Pep same Guardiola. sentiment. 
Is it though? Because a North versus South match is nothing to do with whether you can play a certain style of football, whether a certain player will work. This is a, a guy who's come in and yesterday in an interview claimed that Kevin De Bruyne and Mo Salah were products of the Chelsea Academy, which is just lies. I mean, he's spitballing though, isn't he? He's kind of like just coming up with ideas. And I kind of get where Joel's coming from in terms of we're very dismissive of new ideas and new concepts. I like this idea. A I don't think it'll ever happen. A certain like group it. of football club owners not 18 months ago came up with an idea for the Super League. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, are we really going to start taking ideas on from these people? That's a bit different. The Super League's very different, though. That was basically changing the whole status of football as we know it. This is literally just an extra fixture which could raise money for football pyramid or charities. It's an exhibition match. It is an exhibition match, but it's, it's an absolute Americanism. And that's no disrespect to American sports. But I think American sports are American sports. And there's a lot the Premier League can learn from American sports. We don't need to evolve the Premier League to become in line with the NFL or the NBA or you know, any of the other uh, American leagues. But, so you're talking about an age-old institution here. I mean, it, it's not a good reason to dismiss an idea. And I kind of like the fact he's trying to find a modern approach and maybe something that increases global appeal outside of what was a Super League. There's too many logistical issues for it ever to happen. Clubs won't release players. Where do you draw a line across the UK? Where, where is exactly? North Where's the Midlands? Yeah, well, who like who do the Aston Villa players I mean, play for? You can, how do you work that out? I mean... I'd take it a step further and go, wouldn't it be great to see? And again, it won't happen because the logistics are impossible. But wouldn't it be great to see? And they used to do this in rugby, actually. They used to have, I seem to remember, I might be remembering this wrong. Someone might be able to correct me. But they used to have a Northern Clubs versus Southern Clubs game at Twickenham every single year in Rugby Union. And then also you've got the Barbars and mm. the... Um, Lions, yeah, invitation, kind of like that, yeah. that amalgamation outside your national teams. But wouldn't it be cool to see Premier League versus the Liga versus Bundesliga? No, I don't think it would be cool. Oh, it would, and that would be an interesting alternative to the Super League but, that wouldn't threaten the current format. To be fair, though, we do have the Champions League. I do, League I do for that get one. what both of you are saying, but for me to kind of stake my claim here, and you mentioned the rivalry between those two basketball teams, Joel. Um, football rivalries in this country go deeper than just two teams not liking each other. They are rooted in the people that live in cities. They're rooted in different households. Sometimes there's dislike. Sometimes there's genuine hatred. As a lad from the South, I couldn't get on board with supporting a team captained by James Ward-Prowse, you know, and supporting my... my, I mean, I have no interest in this whatsoever. I just don't see what benefit it brings. If it's for charity, I can get on board with that and I understand why it would happen. But I just don't see the need for it. Why do we need an all-star North versus all-star South Premier League match? I, I just don't get the, what, what's the benefit of it. Is it for entertainment? Is the Premier League yeah. not entertaining enough for you? But what's the benefit of this game, North versus South? I don't understand. Unless it's for charity to raise a load of money. Well, this is I, what he said. This was the main incentive. He's not just saying it as if to say, let's just have a massive game and everyone can enjoy it. He did say that the money would try and distribute down to the football pyramid, which in my opinion, I'm all for that. Where do you have this game? On the moon? You know, you're going to have to have I it mean, somewhere in the UK. Well, you, well, yeah, I mean, this is the country, one of the biggest stadiums in the world. You can't do it at Wembley because that's the South. Yeah, I mean, we're not short of stadiums in this but, country. But, you know, if you're talking about it being North versus South and it being a neutral game, you can't have it in Wembley because that's no. the South. You can't have it in Old Trafford because that's the North. It would end up being in Thailand or somewhere like that. But the, it's like I say, it's a nonsense because it's never going to happen because there's too many logistics well, behind Thailand's it. in the Southern Hemisphere, but, that isn't fair. <laughs> but it's, it's, I mean, we're having it in the Midlands. Everything comes down to one thing in football and in the world and it's money. And that's clearly what it would be. It wouldn't just be a way to raise money for the football pyramid it would be a way to raise the status and the potential sponsorship of individual players Mm -hmm. as well and that's what it all comes down to I think as Joel says I think it's it's wrong to shoot down these ideas before they even get off the ground this one won't get off the ground I kind of see where he's coming from in terms of let's there's there are certain aspects of American sport that just won't work in this country I, I also think this idea has, I think he has been pillared for this. I think me and Joel are probably in the minority in terms of potentially seeing the benefits. I've, I'll I be honest. I've roundly criticised. I've got to be in my bonnet about Todd Bowley because I think the way he dealt with Thomas Tuchel is absolutely shocking. And does, Yeah, but does that make him a terrible, that doesn't make him a terrible owner. You can't compare Todd Bowley to the Glazers. His first that's, decision that's was impossible. to can a manager. After six games, he's been in the door 10 minutes. I don't. He's just got his cash out of his wallet thrown a load of cash at some players and now we're expecting him to be the all-seeing omnipotent owner of Chelsea. He's made some dubious choices in his early reign including appointing himself as sporting director as an interesting choice rather than bringing in someone who knows football and knows what they're doing and knows how to run a Premier League club and I think 
time will tell on whether he can mm. bring success to Chelsea. The early signs aren't particularly good. If the Glazers, given their history, the Premier League had come up with this, it would be seen as it would be viewed in a more negative light. But I certainly don't think I wouldn't say that the whole of the footballing community is on board with the idea of a North versus South Premier League fixture as it is. Good to have the debate anyway. And thanks for the question, Pete. Appreciate it. You can send your questions North into win, us. By the way. Like, uh, <laughs> who would you support, Jim? Who would I? That's a good question. Um, a southern man who now has oh lived God, in the north for 20 question. years. I'd support your, your national come, region, come, please. I'd, yeah, I'd probably go. I'd probably because I can't see too many West Ham players getting in the uh, north, in the southern the southern squad. You'd have a couple of bench so players. Probably have to. I, I, yeah, I'd have to support the north. I think turncoat. <laughs> Absolute Judas. Jim Salverson, the Judas. Uh, don't forget, you can send your questions in to us for next week's AQA via social media. You can get us on Twitter at FSD Pod. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. And join our Telegram chat as well. You can fire your questions in there. The pinned tweet is at the top of our Football Social Daily Twitter page. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Joel. Awesome. That's it from us today. We'll be back again tomorrow and a little bit later with an episode of Shots. We'll speak to you then. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.